everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. Last week, we spoke with Dr. Lucy Lorian about urban planning, and this week, we're looking at another field that's at the intersection of place and public health, medical geography. My name is Rada Villamurri, and today I'm co-hosting this episode with Garrett Naughton. And if it's your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and outside of the field of public health. We're here today with Austin Tung, a PhD student in the, Ge- in the Department of Geographical and Sustainability Sciences here at the University of Iowa. He also started working towards his Master's of Public Health in Biostatistics here in the College of Public Health. We are excited to talk to him about the field of medical geography, his research on lead poisoning in Chicago, and much more during today's episode. Welcome to the show, Austin. Glad to be here. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to choose medical geography as your area of focus? Sure. Um, like Rada just introduced, I am Zhuo Tang. I go by Austin. Um, I'm a PhD student from the geography department, uh, and I joined the program of MPH in biostatistics uh, last fall. I've also got my master's in uh, geography here at University of Iowa, so this is my fourth year uh, here now. I'm from Wuhan, China, so you know if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you know where that is. Um, yeah, and about how I got into the field of medical geography, um, I think this is quite an interesting uh, journey for me. So a little bit of background, my parents, they both work in health-related industries or sectors. Uh, my mom, she works at a regional branch of uh, CDC of China. So in China, the CDC system takes a hierarchical structure and every region and city has its own branch. And uh, my dad, he's a doctor, he's uh, a physician. So although they all have this kind of health-related background, I have never thought of following their paths, and they also did not express um, anything like they want me to go that way either. So as I was choosing my undergraduate major, I kind of randomly bumped into geography um, as my major, um, where I learned a lot about you know spatial sciences, spatial analysis, and learned how to use uh, GIS, so geographic information systems. So uh, for my senior project, I was looking for some real world topics or problems to apply what I've learned. And uh, yeah, that was when I talked to my mom about it. And she's like, she was like, you know, we do have some health related data. And I think, and I think you know, um, you can do some collaborations with us. And I was like, uh, sure, why not? Right. So I did my senior project on uh, hantavirus. And uh, from that experience, I realized that there's so much that geography can do to help uh, public health. And uh, as I explore this topic more, I realized that there is a discipline uh, called medical geography, right? And I thought, yeah, that's that's for me. So yeah, interesting enough, I took a little detour, uh, but this kind of family tradition finally um, still found me, right? Um, yeah, and then I found that Dr. Carol, uh, my advisor, she's an excellent um, medical geographer, and that's why I ended up being here. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess like spinning off of that though is, um, can you tell us a little bit more like specifically about like what will, what does uh, medical geography really look like and the applications you can really use for it in like mm-hmm. everyday life or like, you know, the healthcare fields? Sure. Um, so by definition, uh, medical geography is a discipline that applies geographical concepts to health related problems. So it's a pretty encompassing discipline. 
um, there's also this evolution of health geography and um, this kind of separation of these two closely related subdisciplines. So what I'm saying here is definitely just a very coarse summary. Okay, so I think there are two big general topics under uh, medical geography. Um, the first one is disease ecology, which is a more traditional focus of medical geography. Um, researchers would look at uh, diseases um, and the risk factors from a spatial perspective and uh, understand the mechanisms of disease occurrence and uh, circulation. So both communicable uh, ones like COVID and non-communicable ones like cancer. There's all, this is also my main focus, so I apply spatial analysis methods to uh, disease outcomes. And I like to call this type of medical geography as, you know, hardcore um, medical geography. Not to say that the other topic is not hardcore at all, and this is entirely just my own uh, labeling, okay? No, no one else used this, as far as I know. Um, yeah, but what I meant here is that um, um, under this topic, people work more closely with uh, d diseases and the risk factors. So probably more, you know, medical by definition, right? Um, and yeah, uh, the other topic is um, uh, understanding healthcare. Okay, so researchers would study the spatial distribution of healthcare uh, provision, accessibility, coverage, etc., and they can provide um, um, pub uh, public health policy suggestions to the betterment of the system. So yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about you. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned that you, you know, medical geography, spatial epidemiology, they all sort of define similar things. Uh -huh. I want to talk more about the research you do and how your, you know, time in the geography department and your new budding time in mm -hmm. the public health department, mm -hmm. how you sort of came up with the idea for your research, your mm -hmm. project. You recently published a paper called uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Persistent spatial inequity in pediatric lead poisoning in Chicago. Yeah. And I want you to walk us through that a little bit, like how you came about the idea, um, what made you decide to, you know, pick this city, what made you decide to look at pediatric lead poisoning, and how you, you know, ended up publishing this paper. Sure, absolutely. Um, so my research, so uh, like I just mentioned, I... Um, work more directly with uh, diseases or health uh, issues, right? So I have done uh, projects, uh, the one that you just mentioned, lead poisoning, right? As well as, so my master thesis was about H5N1 avian influenza in uh, Indonesia. And uh, in my PhD program, I'm currently uh, looking at um, antibiotic resistance uh, in um, uh, antibiotic resistance uh, and, and bacteria. And uh, that paper you just mentioned, it was a paper that was, uh, it's a paper that was published in, yeah, earlier this year that I worked uh, closely with my advisor, uh, Dr. Margaret Carroll. We published it together uh, uh, in the journal called uh, Applied Geography. Yeah, so this is um, actually, uh, I was doing a course, course project uh, in Dr. Carroll's class. And um, um, yeah, it turned out to be very interesting, and so we decided to turn this course course project into a full length paper. And uh, so yeah, um, 
What are other questions? I guess, um, I mean, like, I'm from the kind of greater Chicagoland area. Oh, really? I um, was kind of just wondering, yeah. what made you choose Chicago? Was it just location-based, or was it because they have, a, like, more of a significant problem with this lead poisoning, or is it just a problem that happens with big metropolitan areas like New York, Los Angeles, places like that? I guess, yeah. So, um, the initial rationale is that, so lead poisoning, we know that, um, you know, before 1970s, we had uh, lead-based gasoline, and we also had um, uh, lead-based uh, house paints, and also with faucets and pipes with lead in it, right? And uh, later on, these were all banned, but, um, you know, the, the impact of lead-based um, gasoline was quite obvious because you just right. took that out and you don't have this uh, air pollution yeah, yeah. with lead in it but um, there are still a lot of houses old houses mm-hmm. with uh, lead based paint right. and and them right and uh, they can produce um, uh, house dusts uh, with lead in them and uh, so generally a big uh, risk factor is that if you're living mm-hmm. in an area with a lot of old housing yeah, right. and um um, with not very well maintained uh, facilities, mm-hmm. you will have elevated risk to have lead uh, poisoning. So big cities with longer histories right. would generally have a higher well a higher risk. And is that kind of where that. we see some of the disparity? Because maybe like the lower income places aren't going to have the ability to keep up and maintain, and they're also going to be in the older poly areas Absolutely. too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing is that we want to look at spatial differences, right? right? So, um, yeah, like you mentioned, disparity is also a big contributing factor. And, yeah, Chicago is kind of well-known for its... Yeah, yeah, from there. I know, I know. Disparity, right? It's tough. Yeah, we're we're thinking, yeah, maybe that would be a good place to look at it. It's also close to Iowa. Yeah, it is close to Iowa. Kind of. Applications. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you think systemic racism plays a role in uh, your research, or is specifically for the Chicago study? Right, yeah. Um, Okay, I think I still need to introduce, walk you through the paper's method and findings. Okay. And then then we can talk about how we think some of the backplay. Okay, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the methods for how you did this research. Can you tell us a little bit more about exactly how you went about doing the this geographic mm-hmm. research? Sure, sure. Um, so we wanted to look at um, this issue from a dynamic, temporally and uh, temporally dynamic um, perspective, but also spatially how it varies across space in the city of Chicago, right? So uh, we gathered data for 15 years, from 1999 to 2013, and looked at um, the percentage of uh, kids um, screened with elevated blood lead level, um, how the rate has changed uh, over time uh, within each community area of uh, Chicago. And uh, yeah, and we also um, considered other uh, risk factors. So we gathered uh, census data and did spatial reg- uh, spatial regression analysis and found some um, significant correlations uh, or, or um, contributing factors for lead poisoning. We also did hotspot analysis to detect uh, where uh, are persistent, persistent um, higher rates 
of elevated blood lead level are in Chicago. And what did you find out? Right, yeah. So we basically found, found out that um, there are uh, persistent hotspots in the uh, so- south side of Chicago. Although, you know, in 1999, the, um, the average rate of elevated blood lead level uh, was around 40 in the city. But when it goes to uh, 2013, it became less than 5%. But, um, like I just mentioned, there is still persistent um, disparity um, in the city. So um, the hotspot did not uh, fade away. So then, the south side yeah. still has significantly higher rates of uh, elevated blood lead level compared to its surrounding areas and the rest of the city. Right. What do you think caused that, de- uh, like that decrease? That is it just like efforts to actually like help the, the lead levels in that area? Um... I mean, I'm sure there were policy right, efforts yeah. to reduce lead, you know, to eliminate lead in paint yeah, and eliminate yeah. lead in certain, uh, like, packaging materials and things like mm-hmm, that. So mm-hmm. I assume that would have helped. Right. And, like, active uh, maybe lead testing. Do you think that could have played a role? I think so, yeah. Maybe um, there is better coverage for testing. Um, and also, um, with more and more houses get renovated, people just generally have less exposure to lead. But what right. your research is telling us is that there's still this hot spot in this in south side of Chicago mm-hmm. that despite a lo- a lowering of lead levels in throughout the entire area mm-hmm. there still remains a higher level of lead uh, poison or elevated blood levels of lead mm-hmm. in the south side of Chicago yeah. relative to the rest of Chicago. Okay. So how do you think I mean, we hear, you know, south side of Chicago maybe isn't the safest place or things like that. Like, right. you hear all these stereotypes. I mean, you're from Chicago. Right, yeah, and I You've I, I understand, and it's just, like, it was, like, disparities that, like, occurred to make it that way. And, exactly. like, the way that people just kind of ended up there that might have um, had a better opportunity if the, you know, systemic racism wasn't... Uh, as prevalent. Uh, yeah. How do you think systemic racism played a role? Absolutely. So um, we actually found a significant cor- correlation between lead poisoning and um, um, education attainment, uh, renter occupation of the houses, uh, minority population, and obviously uh, average house age, right? So I think these are all, you can see them all as proxies, as um or results of systematic, partly results from uh, systematic racism, right? So we know that um, in Southside uh, Chicago City, we have a higher percentage of minority population. And uh, at the same time, we know that um, they also have a higher average house age because of um, historical reasons uh, like redlining and uh, other housing uh, discriminations. Yeah, so for those of you who might not know what redlining is, it's this discriminatory discriminatory practice in which services are withheld from certain groups of people uh, and certain neighborhoods which are classified as hazardous or not really ideal for investment. Um, These neighborhoods are, you know, they have racial minorities, ethnic minorities, low-income residents, and they have been essentially closed off from... Uh, you know, access to good resources or they live in more dangerous areas purely because of, um, you know, systemic racism and uh, 
like the government, like certain efforts on part of individuals in the government to um, separate and segregate individuals. Yeah. Absolutely. So those are the areas that got left off in this history of, of uh, community development, right? So, um, you know, what people do when they try to invest into a, in, a, in an area. They just come in and, you know, renovate the houses, um, bring, uh, build, more, uh, build newer houses without lead poisoning, without uh, lead-based pipes. Yeah, when, a, when an area, when a region uh, is developed, they would come in and build, uh, renovate older houses or just have new buildings, right? And these areas, they did not get enough resources to keep up with this, um, uh, with, with this development trend, right? So uh, they also have just a higher average house age, which is a, a significant risk factor for um, lead exposure right and I guess kind of going off of that because that's kind of one way that an effort could be made to like reduce lead exposure lead poisoning uh, what other efforts would you like to see or could be done by either local government or like even individuals that could assist in the decreasing of lead exposure right um, another very interesting fa- uh, finding we got was that um, you know although gentrification we see gentrification going on in Chicago very extensively um, you know, in those gentrified areas, we see a dropped um, rate of elevated blood lead level. But, um, but if we also look at the demographics of that area, the change uh, over time, we also see that there is a significant drop of uh, minority group and uh, a, uh, a huge increase, uh, huge increases in uh, median household income. So, um, so we, we, can see that this these kind of processes of gentrification would drive those um, minority group out and uh, also drive those um, original residents that did that could not afford this increase in life expenses, right? So, um, although gentrification brought down the lead uh, level in children, it did not help the original residents that lived there. Right. It's a so, double-edged sword of gentrification. Yeah, right, definitely. So I think if we want to really help those people we intended to help, uh, we intended to help, uh, I think we should provide um, pathways that is not reliant on just moving to another area, right? We have to help them on site, maybe provide more resources for better renovation or better uh, checks uh, at houses uh, and, and houses that has, uh, that and houses that are old, right? And um, we also mentioned that there's a significant correlation between uh, renter occupation and lead poisoning, right? So maybe it's because that renters have less um, agency in controlling the, uh, this issue in the house because that they're, that's their temporary... Uh, temporary... Housing? Yeah. That's their uh, temporary housing, right? So maybe we can also... Um, Require the landlord to um, better uh, account for this exposure or this risk in the housing that they're uh, lending, leasing. Mm-hmm.
And I guess, like, switching gears, um, looking forward a little bit, like, you had talked to us before we started recording about your other research that you were doing about antibiotic resistance. That's, yeah. I mean, if you wanted to talk about that, you can. But uh, what future research, I guess, are you going into and looking forward to, you know, start working on? Sure. I'm, um, I'm very, very excited about this uh, PhD uh, project uh, for my uh, thesis, um, which is about antibiotic resistance. So we're trying to... Uh, study the geography of antibiotic resistance, probably mainly uh, in the U.S. So we know that there's a huge issue of growing antibiotic resistance, and uh, it's also highly related uh, with its extensive use in uh, livestock, right? And um, so, for example, in, um, in Iowa, we have corn, and we also have... Soybeans, pigs, pigs. Oh, the, okay, okay. Well, we also have soybeans. One point five pig per person, I think, is that the the stat? Something like that. I just know that six. the six. Iowa six. pork is it six pigs I just per, know. Per, per, per person? Per person. Yeah. I just know that the Iowa Pork too. Association <laughs> is right next to the li- the you public know? library. Yeah. I went to. Did you know, oh, that, is, did you know that the Pork Association actually just runs this with state? No. <laughs> no, yeah, the Iowa Pork Association they, runs the entire. They actually state. have a yeah, they have a big sway in public government. I've run so much, like even in like speech competitions, like the Pork Association was. Sponsoring it? <laughs> no, we sit at the same hotel as the Pork Association. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I'm vegetarian. I don't know oh, much about pork, fair. but I do know that there's a lot. There's a lot of pigs in Iowa, but we also have soybeans. All right, keep going. True. Yeah. There's a lot so, of everything. Oh, I'll start. Tell us about pigs. Yeah, we have pigs, right? Pigs. I think the uh, demographic is like we have six pigs per person, which is uh, that, six pigs per I think, person. I think yeah. it's. I think we need more. <laughs> <laughs> Cool, great. Where did they go? Oh, uh, yeah, have more bacon. <laughs> um, oh, my um, gosh. Right, so you know that antibiotics are used in raising pigs, and we have these large... Uh, com- uh, it's like a large population. I mean, like coming from a microbio like area, I know how bad that is. Just ge- like a general application of antibiotics for not knowing what you use it for is just the worst thing you could probably do because it's just going to develop these resistant microbes that are just going to be so tough to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are all like um, they're all raised in most of them are raised in concentrated animal feeding right, operations. Yeah. So these huge, huge hog farms, and they consume really huge amount of antibiotics and a lot of the antibiotics used in pigs they're also medically important for a human so that they're also used to treat human infections so um i think a, about a decade ago people already found that if you live with close enough to a uh, hog um, farm you have like three times of the risk three three times of the risk of getting um um, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus infection. And now, because of that, UIHC now actually screens for um, uh, MRSA, or methicillin-resistant um, Staph aureus, before uh, doing any operations. So uh, we know that there is elevated risk, but we also know that it's highly re- related to the local landscape. Here we have hogs, and you know different animals or livestock would use different types of antibiotics, right? So we would assume that different regions would have this different resistant profile in local um, strains of bacteria. So if we can get better idea about how the profile differ in different regions, then we can use that to better facilitate our uh, drug or antibiotics administration.
when it comes to clinical practices. I'm really excited for you to go more into this because you just started this. I just started this. I'm still looking for data. Exactly. Yeah. But like, you know, you've already done one project that, you know, lead poisoning in Chicago and now you're Mm -hmm. completely switching gears to antibiotic resistance. So that shows just how varied, uh, I guess, spatial epidemiology or medical (laughs) geography is. So I guess, you know, just from you, we've learned two completely different perspectives are possible. But Mm -hmm. could you tell us like maybe in like a sentence or two why you think spatial perspectives are needed for public health like why i mean it's we've already seen evidence based on your previous work and what you're working on now but like just like maybe if you had to like give a campaign pitch for it (laughs) why people to join the generic (laughs) introduction to to join the medical no we're trying to we're trying to get people to join the cause yeah um why do you think spatial perspectives are needed for public health absolutely If, if you don't mind taking more than one or two sentences. <laughs> Good enough. Um, so I guess, you know, I always remember this. When I was a kid, my, my teacher told me if you want to tell a good story, you have, like, five W's, right? So can you... Who, what, where, when, when, when yeah. why... The question, what about how? All the questions. <laughs> that's an H. The how? That's not as important. <laughs> <laughs> not as important. But we know that there is, a, there is where in it. So where things are happening is a essential component of... A, a problem of a story, right? If you wanted to tell a good story, you have to tell us where that is happening, right? So that I think that is generally what what people are interested. Um, so where is an important part of the of the big picture, right? We want to know where uh, diseases are happening, so that we can get to them more efficiently, right? So this is why it's important and why space is a useful. Uh, perspective is also that um, you know disease or risk factors they they happen in space and the pattern of distribution is not random so um, I'm trying to think about some examples like we just mentioned in the project right so um, the uh, the lead poisoning does not happen equally across space. There are places with higher, with elevated blood lead level. So if we can um, understand better about the how the risk factors are distributed in space, we can use that to better understand how um, diseases are happening in space or do predictions. It's like a deeper connection to like an epidemiological study, pretty much. It's like you're, it's a speci- like a specified area mm-hmm. of that, I guess. I guess yeah, and, and since you are from public health, I I I I'm sure that you all know uh, John Snow, mm-hmm. right? We so love he, John Snow. Right, we love John Snow. <laughs> He's our guy, the father of public health. Is that epidemiology? Yeah, of epidemiology. Say yeah. He's the father of epidemiology, mm-hmm. and his his famous project is also spatial, mm-hmm. right? He uh, draw. He drew a map of Linden, those few blocks, and uh, he also um, tracked the water in the uh, in in the area, and you just like he kind of just asked people, "Hey, where would you get your water yeah. from?" Like, and he basically identified it. yeah, it was the early, distribution early, of cholera right, right. around um, with a map. Yeah, and he ended up yes. finding out that it was related to. Um, a water plant, not a water plant, water treatment. It was a water pipe. Pipe. It was water, water pipe. Water pipe. And I should you know this. the handle. Yeah. yeah. 
and a water uh, pump. It was yeah. a very famous story. It's very, it's very famous. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is, I'd say it's essentially kind of a hotspot analysis, right? Because all the um, cases are happening so closely in space that it must have something there. It must have something there that is causing this cluster, right? So I guess public health from, the, from its epidemiology from its beginning has a spatial component to it. Then I think that is also why we need to take care of that. And with the aid of technology, Absolutely. you guys can do so much more. Like you don't have to rely on small hand drawn maps. <laughs> Absolutely, you yes. can you can you get like people, so much where data. Do you get your water. Yeah, <laughs> you get to use you know data and fancy programs, and I'm sure you code all the time mm-hmm. in order to analyze your data and get your results much faster and much more effectively. I, I think that's exactly the case. I think. A lot of people think geography, think of geographers as map makers mm-hmm. or to cartographers, but that is really, really the last step of our research, which is data visualization, right? But you can also, I think you can, uh, there are so many things you can do other than data visualization, for example, data management. You can put layers and layers of data all together into one database, and then you can do data analysis, right? Do um, hotspot analysis. Um, wow, network do hotspot analysis, do network analysis, and all these kind of all different types of spatial statistics. So I guess we can say medical geography is both the past and it's Ooh, also the future. Yeah. Well, I guess you can say that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was a, that's a really good place for us to mm-hmm. sort of wrap up. We have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. It's the question we ask all of our guests. It's, and it can be about anything. I know it's, like, scary, but um, it's just, what was one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about? It could be about your project. It could be about medical geography. Uh-huh. It could be whatever you want it to be. What do you think? Yes. Like, what was one thing, maybe, like, when you came into medical geography, like, oh, what about, you thought you would be doing, yeah. but, like, you realized you'd be do, you're doing a lot more of something else, or... Yeah, I started living alone this semester. I thought at the beginning it was going to be hard because it's just a lot to... Uh, take care of for this one household but yeah later on I, I, I freaking love it so. <laughs> hey you know it doesn't have to be academically related we ask this right. question to everyone sure. we just want to know like because we want people to know that it's okay to be wrong and you learn from everything so like yeah. we learned a lot about medical geography today you learn from living alone we're like, welcome yeah <laughs> there's so many things we can learn yeah. from just you know our interactions so Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if uh, any of our listeners have any questions, I'd encourage them to check out his paper. It's called, once again, for the people in the back, it's called The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same, Persistent Spatial Inequity in Pediatric Lead Poisoning in Chicago. And we'll see what else you bring to the table in the future. Very artistic name you came up with there. Yeah. We didn't even get to that, but... Yeah, it's a good name. It's a very good name for a research paper. And that's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Austin Tung for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted by Rada Villamurray and one of our newest members, Garrett Nodden, written and edited by Garrett Nodden and Anya Morozov, and produced by Anya Morozov. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to help support the show, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? 
You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.